Hello everyone and thank you for tuning in to this episode of UNS After Hours. We're very privileged to have Professor Eckhart Fromm, who lectures at Yale University with us today. Professor Fromm was appointed Assistant Professor of Assyriology at Yale in 2002 and Professor in 2008. His main research interests are Assyrian and Babylonian history and Mesopotamian scholarly texts of the first millennium BCE. His undergraduate courses at Yale include topics in Mesopotamian history, religion and literature, and the Bible in the ancient Near Eastern setting. We've included a link to his bio and academia page in the podcast description below. Thank you, Professor. To start things off, um, could you tell us about your work as an astrologist? Well, so an astrologist is someone who studies the languages and civilizations of the ancient Near East. And that includes the Assyrians. Astrology is um, named after the Assyrian civilization, but is not limited to them. So astrologists also study the ancient Babylonians, the Hittites, the Sumerians. And while for the outsider that may seem a rather exotic and, and strange discipline, it is actually a pretty large array of different languages and civilizations um, that archaeologists work on, uh, and it's also really a, a long time period that they study. Fundamentally, it's the time period marked by the use of a writing system known as cuneiform, which was invented roughly around 3500 BCE and was used up to the first century of the Common Era. The latest cuneiform tablet that is datable uh, is from 75 AD. And this really is a long period of time. I mean, this, this is quite um, unusual for historical discipline to cover such an extended period. Um, and it should also be added that the texts that we have, that we study, um, belong to all sorts of different categories. So we have um, a lot of economic texts, we have literary texts, religious texts. Uh, we also, for example, have letters. Uh, which belong to the most fascinating genres from the ancient Near East. Letters both written by private people so f- um, to their family members, uh, but also state correspondences. So one of the most fascinating corpora of texts from the ancient Near East um, is the state correspondence of the uh, late Neo-Syrian kings from the 8th and 7th centuries BCE. And that's a time when Assyria was, in a way, the first empire in world history. And, um, of course, these letters exchanged between the Assyrian kings and their officials and provincial governors and uh, bureaucrats all over the place, spies somewhere in border regions, just provide us with a lot of information on the Assyrian Empire. So it's, it's a very broad field, unlike what many will probably believe when they first hear of astrology. It's, it's, it's also an exciting field because um, there's still a lot of work to be done. Uh, estimates are that some 500,000, uh, maybe actually more, uh, clay tablets are now uh, available for study in museums and collections all over the world, um, written in, in many different languages. I mentioned some of them already, of different language families. Uh, and of those, a uh, majority is still unpublished. Um, so there's really still a lot of work to be done. I mean, many famous texts, such as the Epic of Gilgamesh, one of the texts that some of you may have heard of, 
um, are well edited, are well known, are available in good translations, everyone can study them. But other texts, um, and especially texts from everyday life, are actually not yet available, and that makes this discipline an exciting one. And how did you come to learn of and gain interest in the histories of Near Eastern civilizations? Yeah, well, I mean, it's not that I started at, 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 uh, in kindergarten or so, and then when I was 12, I, I think I wanted to become a sportscaster on the radio, uh, sort of soccer, and, and certainly not someone studying the civilizations of the ancient East. I should perhaps add, because I didn't say that in my answer to the first question, ancient East, that is fundamentally the area now covered by uh, the states of Iraq, uh, Syria, Turkey, and Iran. Uh, so at that time, uh, when I was 12, I had very different ideas. Uh, but um, in high school, I decided at some point um, to study um, Hebrew, um, mainly out of curiosity. Uh, it was a language uh, that was not in European, that was different, that seemed exotic and exciting for that reason. And by studying Hebrew, I first learned, in a way, of uh, the fact that there was a civilization um, still to some extent really un understudied um, in ancient Mesopotamia um, that seemed an exciting field to, 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 to investigate and employ. I also traveled in the area a little bit uh, during my uh, high school days and then also later while I was in the, in the army uh, in Germany and um, visited, among other places, uh, a site um, today uh, named Boaskoi, which is the ancient city of Khatusha, the capital of the Hittite state, uh, which appealed to me a lot. I, 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 there is also obviously some sort of a romantic connection to the Pastian place. I like this place. It, it seemed um, that, that uh, this, this, this was something that was, that was exciting and uh, that also um, contributed to my interest in this field. And that is how I eventually got into it. And, uh, started studying it at uni on, on, on the university level. And I understand that Mesopotamia was home to a dizzying area of people, dynasties, and powers. And obviously, it would be impossible to do justice to the vast scholarship on its history in a podcast um, like this. Um, nevertheless, could you just you know um, paint us a picture of the history of the region in very broad strokes? Yeah, so I think dizzying is, is, is or bewildering. These would be adjectives that are actually quite accurate. So alone for, for one uh, short period of ancient Eastern history, the so-called Old Babylonian period between roughly 2000 BCE and 1600 BCE, we know the names of some 400 different kings. And uh, you, you can all be relaxed, I'm going to start uh, listing them here. Um, so in very broad strokes, um, what um, one can see when one studies the ancient Near East is, is sort of a trajectory from the very beginnings of, of human um, cohabitation to uh, the invention of of, um, of of states and cities to very complex uh, uh, and large uh, political entities, empires, and so on. Uh, the the Middle East is is the area where the so-called Neolithic evolution has uh, occurred. That is where, for the first time in human history. Um, Animals such as pigs, uh, goats, cows, uh, and dogs uh, were domesticated, and plants such as emma, barley, um, or um, uh, or wheat, uh, all of them still uh, I mean staple staples of, of modern life actually, uh, and that happened around ten thousand BCE, and that was of course a major um, change from a um, lifestyle based on hunting and gathering to a more settled lifestyle uh, based on agriculture. Um, 
this happened in the so-called Fertile Crescent, which is a region sort of uh, from 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 Jericho and Israel to the Taurus Mountains in Turkey, uh, and then east and southwest to the Zagros Mountains in uh, modern Iran. Um, and at some point, uh, people began to move further south uh, in Mesopotamia uh, along uh, the courses of the two big rivers in this uh, area, the Euphrates and the Tigris River, um, where agriculture could no longer be based on uh, rainfall, but had to be based on artificial irrigation provided by these two rivers and the canals uh, that had to be built um, into the fields uh, where the water would be needed. And the need to build these canals to drain the fields so that there wouldn't be too much salt on them, all that required organization and management. And this is probably the reason why in this uh, very fertile region, region if fertile if you, if you do it the right way, um, larger cities uh, were, were came into being, uh, which, which were, were centers of, of, of these managerial efforts uh, to increase agricultural uh, production. And uh, one of the most important of these cities, in fact, in a way, if you wish, uh, the first great city, the first megapolis, if you wish, uh, was the city of Uruk, uh, where around 4,000, 3,500 BCE, uh, also sort of in, in, in to facilitate uh, the, the exchange of agricultural goods and other trade goods, uh, writing was invented, and that was, of course, a major step. Um, as time moved on, we see in Mesopotamia sort of uh, a change between periods when we have various city-states competing, collaborating with uh, one another, um, and uh, eras of greater political unification, uh, when one of these city-states would fundamentally become the dominant power in the area and would, would rule all the other ones. And one important um, milestone in this development was the kingdom uh, of the Sargonic kings, um, roughly 2300 BCE, uh, which is not only the first unified large territorial state in the region, but also became in the cultural memory of the Mesopotamians a model for this kind of, of empire building, if you wish. Um, but I would actually say that the first real empire um, was only created some well, significantly later in, 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 in the 8th century BCE, and that was the Syrian Empire, um, a state that um, had its center um, first uh, at a place known from the Bible as Nimrud or Kalach, and then later on at the famous city of Nineveh, the, the capital of the Syrian Empire, um, and ruled essentially all the regions from Iran, from modern Iran, to uh, modern Egypt at the height of uh, its power. Um, from this period, uh, we have, uh, for example, uh, also the first universal library in the history of the world. That is the, the library of the Assyrian king Ashurbanipal from roughly 650 BCE, which included, this was really a bibliomaniac, this king, which included um, some 30,000 tablets or so, and, and, and among them, uh, uh, copies of the Gilgamesh epic, but also bilingual texts in the Sumerian and Akkadian languages spoken in the area from very early on, um, and the aforementioned uh, royal correspondence, for example, which also became archived uh, at Nineveh. Uh, and uh, for modern uh, historians and students of the region, of course, this this uh, is an important moment in the history of, of, of this area, because these texts are still a really important portion of what we study. 
Um, and it seems to me the Assyrian Empire is particularly important because it uh, served as a kind of blueprint for later uh, imperial states in the area, beginning with the Neo-Babylonian Empire, the Persian Empire, and even sort of later empires such as the Sasanians or the Abbasids, up to the Ottomans, in a way organized um, their power in ways very similar to the Assyrians with uh, different provinces governed by provincial governors with a king at the head of the state with eunuchs in positions of, of, of power because they could be they were considered as being particularly reliable. Um, so there were structures put into place by the Assyrians uh, that uh, served as models for later times and the Assyrians in a way are also the the first state of the ancient Near East that was uh, memorized by uh, later generations in the Bible um, and also in classical sources uh, by, by Greek historians. Could you provide us with um, perhaps some examples in which the organization of um, the Bible and the development of its textual contents have been influenced by contemporary ideas and beliefs? Yeah, so the class I'm actually teaching here at Singapore is about the Bible in its ancient Eastern setting. Um, and I wouldn't teach it if I didn't believe that there is evidence for the Bible being being shaped in some way and influenced uh, by um, the politics and literary and religious traditions of uh, the major powers um, that surrounded ancient Israel. Um, and I think the Mesopotamian tradition, the cuneiform tradition, is particularly important in this regard uh, because during the time of the formation of the Hebrew Bible, sort of between 800 and 200 BCE, it was first the Assyrians and then later on the Babylonians, um, and then the Persians, who dominated uh, the well dominated Western Asia politically. Uh, this is also the period in the sixth century, in fact, when the Judeans uh, famously sent into exile to Babylon, um, a moment in their history when they must have been exposed to ideas, traditions, texts studied by the Babylonians in Babylon, um, and where it's just very likely that. Uh, uh, through this encounter with these all-powerful Babylonians, they they must have felt the need to uh, reshape their own traditions. And when you look at specific stories and traditions in the Bible, you see um, not everywhere, not always, but in many cases, uh, parallels between biblical um, texts and uh, texts from the ancient Near East. So a famous example I covered already in the 19th century um, for example, is um, the biblical flood story, uh, which talks about one man being saved uh, by God from uh, a flood sent down as punishment um, for all human beings. He survives on a on a boat uh, with all the animals together with him on that boat, and eventually lands on a mountain. And uh, uh, the first thing he does when when uh, when uh, the waters recede is that he sacrifices to God. Uh, and this is a story uh, that not only in its basic outlines, but also in many of its details, really has very close parallels in a variety of uh, flood stories from Mesopotamia, which also talk about one man being saved and being on a boat together with the animals and sacrificing to uh, the gods after having been um, finally, after his boat finally stranding on a mountain. Um, flood myths, of course, are known from. Uh, civilizations all over the world, and including China, including the New World, but it is the uh, richness of details where, where we find parallels make it like that make, makes, it, makes it likely that there is here really 
uh, a case to be made for a direct influence of the Babylonian texts on, on the biblical texts. It includes, for example, also the episode where the birds sent out by Noah after he has landed on the mountain. Um, exactly the same thing is reported in uh, the Babylonian Atramphasis epic and also in the Gilgamesh epic, which includes a version of the flood story. So it seems just very likely that there's a connection. What's interesting, though, and uh, I think what's always important to keep in mind um, when one makes these comparisons is that it's not that the biblical authors just simply copy stuff from the Babylonians, they transform it. Because in the Babylonian version of the flood story, the flood is sent by the gods as a means of population control. So human beings multiply and it becomes just too noisy. And that annoys the gods, and so they decide, especially the king of the gods, Endel, decides to send down this, this flood to annihilate human beings. When you look at the Bible and in the end uh, of, of, of the Babylonian story, what happens is uh, there's a guarantee that no other flood will be sent, but all sorts of um, ways, uh, well, all sorts of measures are put into place to guarantee a certain degree of population control. So sickness, priestesses who must not have offspring, um, these, these things are instituted by the gods to make sure that humans do not multiply too much. In the Bible, um, the biblical story, of course, I think on three different occasions, God commands Noah to be fruitful and multiply. This is exactly the opposite of what the Babylonian text says. So the Bible clearly could be, the biblical story could be in some regards conceived of as a kind of counter story to the Babylonian story. And that's typical for other such uh, reference to Babylonian culture and t uh, tradition as well. The story of the Babylonian Tower, um, the Tower of Babel and the confusion of tongues is another other such case. Um, the story probably goes back to the experience of the um, Judeans in the Babylonian exile, where they must have seen the mighty ziggurat, the temple tower of the god ba Marduk in Babylon. And that temple tower in Babylonian uh, religion had the function of, of serving as, as a collecting point. Everything, every, all the tribute of the world, all the people of the world were supposed to come together in Babylon. And this, this, this powerful tower symbolized this um, centripetal message. In the Bible, this message is reversed. It becomes a centrifugal message, so the people are dispersed, but the Torah is not finished, and eventually um, God decides that people will speak different languages and they, are all, uh, they all have to leave the city and descend to different areas in the world. And this is something you can observe on many occasions, also, for example, in the legal passages of the Bible. Um, and uh, I think that makes this kind of, of, of investigation particularly intriguing. Um, my point here is not to say, oh, the Bible is just a copy of Babylonian ideas. Uh, my point rather is to say uh, it uh, draws on such ideas, but often enough it, it reverts them, and, and sometimes in really revolutionary ways. For example, when it comes to king kingship, which is something extremely important, a central notion of Babylonian and Assyrian politics, there's a strong king. In the Bible, it's very much the opposite. The kings are perceived of as, as weak, and true loyalty belongs actually not to your king, but belongs to God alone. And that is one of these revolutionary um, transformations uh, encoded in the Bible. But in order to understand that, you really have to know something about its background. So prior to this interview, we have uh, solicited questions from our audience, and one of which pertains to the issue of how we may engage with texts like the Old Testament. Um, do you have any tips for us on how we can approach the various texts that we find in the Old Testament? Yeah, I mean, I, I want to pontificate how anyone is supposed to read the Bible. This is something that everyone must decide for, for themselves. And, and 
Um, what I would say is, though, that I think the best way to approach the Bible is with an open mind, especially Hebrew Bible, um, the Old Testament and the Christian uh, tradition, uh, is uh, such a diverse uh, conglomeration of different books that one of its great attractions is that probably everyone will find something in it that will resonate with him or her. Um, uh, whether you approach it um, as a believer or whether you approach it as someone studying it as an historical text, you can approach it from all sorts of different angles, of course. You can you can study it for for its literary qualities. Um, you, you may be interested in the psychology of central characters of the Bible, the patriarchs, Joseph also. Uh, these are all fascinating uh, possible approaches to the Bible, um, and they are all legitimate, uh, I would say. Um, what I said before about studying it through the lenses of of of, of uh, comparative um, well, of a comparative perspective, uh, I mean, is is that this does not, I think, uh, diminish the uh, attraction of the Bible. That it can actually enhance it in many ways by um, putting putting more of a focus on on why the Bible really is a text that uh, that is in so many ways sorts of different from everything that precedes it. Um, and that would be something I would try to um, convey to the students in, in the class I'm teaching here, um, that this, this is a reason why it, 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 it actually uh, makes sense to read the Bible uh, through this comparative perspective. Mm. Another question that we've received um, concerns the inerrancy of the Bible. It reads, Is it still possible to reconcile the belief that the Bible is inerrant and inspired word of God with the knowledge that there are so many instances in which the biblical authors borrowed and adapted ideas from the neighbors, as I've mentioned, and modified the text to advance certain agendas. Yeah, I mean, of course, you, you have a lot of people who simply put into question uh, modern scholars' uh, approach to the Bible, um, the comparative approach that I've just described, and, and would simply deny that there actually is this kind of connection and would say um, that um, those claims that uh, scholars like me uh, make um, are not sufficiently founded in, in, in historical reality, um, and they would just say, I have no problem reading the Bible in, in this in, 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 as an inspired text because I don't go at all with this approach. What I would say is, um, I think um, you can still read the Bible as a true believer even uh, when you consider it as a document uh, produced by human beings um, in the course of, of an historical process. And in fact, the Bible, of course, uh, does uh, not claim that it uh, doesn't have any human authors. Uh, the Psalms, according to the Bible, for example, were uh, are Psalms uh, of, of David. Um, so it's not said that this was this was God himself or so. Um, and what you could argue is that each of the different authors of biblical books, of the redactors or so, was in a way inspired, and that this whole um, history of, of, of the composition of the Bible as such uh, reflects a process that was in a way divinely sanctioned. So this would be a way for believers to reconcile their beliefs with um, an acknowledgement of, of, of what, what modern historians would consider a, a very likely scenario in which the Bible is being written in response to prompts political and cultural from the outside and um, is then slowly modified um, by redactors up to uh, the point where it finally becomes this canonical text uh, as which we have it today. Um, 
Obviously, not everyone will agree, and um, it's interesting that one of the key figures um, in the uh, establishment of, of the historical critical method, uh, a German scholar from the city of Göttingen by the name of Julius Wellhausen, um, who um, identified four different sources for the biblical texts, that this scholar Wellhausen actually resigned from his position as a, as a professor of, of, of um, Protestant theology uh, because he thought he could no longer really teach uh, ministers um, the Bible uh, with this knowledge in mind that it is a text written by various human authors and then modified by others. So some people would probably say uh, it's not possible. But I think it's also important to keep in mind that the historical critical approach to the Bible is to a significant extent actually a Protestant project. It's a project um, uh, in which Protestant theologians have played a major role. And while some people may say it's a sign of weakness not to defend the text against an historicist approach, for me, and I'm, I'm not a theologian, I'm a historian and a scholar of the ancient East, for me, it's actually rather a sign of, of, of courage and of strength, uh, of being able to cope with certain realities, I think, uh, we have to acknowledge um, and reconcile them with, with other needs that uh, human beings have. Of course, uh, a historicist approach doesn't produce meaning or so. The meaning has to come from somewhere else. And uh, I would say, I mean, uh, the biblical books can provide that meaning uh, whether you believe in, in them being being entirely infallible or not. And and you could even argue that, um, I mean, if you believe in, 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 in them being divinely inspired, uh, that uh, God might have uh, created this book uh, in, in such a bewilderingly uh, well-diverse fashion exactly because, uh, well, human beings and human history are messy. Uh, it's never really uh, one-dimensional and one-sided. Um, uh, so again, I, I'm not particularly well equipped to answer this question not better than anyone else for that matter but that would be in a way would be the answer that i would be giving from my personal sort of experience mm -hmm. thank you for tuning in to yo and us after hours this episode is written and hosted by austin ung from class 2021 and the music is composed by nico nazarev of class 2022 we're a student-run podcast, and it would mean a lot to us if you could rate and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcast. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode. Till we meet again, goodbye.